2: got some very
1: cool special guests including musical acts that we all love like karina reichman daniel donato jake brownstein from eggy rick and peter from goose
2: and many more tune in for new episodes dropping on osiris media march 5th on the best show ever podcast
3: okay well it's time for
1: that uh special moment
0: we hope you all enjoy myself during this next
2: song
4: Ernie Anastasio said in the documentary about Trey, he felt that that was sort of the inflection point. That was the turning point when he said the streets were closed off. There were certainly a line of people down the block who were unable to get into that gig. And the people at the Paradise were absolutely gobsmacked because they'd never heard of Fish. You know, it's a well-established club. It's a very hallowed rock club, 650 capacity in Boston. It's been there for many years. And many, you know, many kind of old-school techs work there and everything. I remember they said to Fish, they said, you guys ever worked a gig before? And when the show sold out and then some, it just raised a lot of eyebrows. This was, this was like a mission. There was a purpose. We were going to sell out the paradise. We were going to show people that they, if they didn't get what was going on here, then screw them. We're going to make them understand it.
3: The legend surrounding the January 26, 1989 show at the Paradise Rock Club in Boston is that the club didn't think four guys from Vermont could fill the room. So Fish rented it out themselves and sold tickets. As we know now, they did fill the room and then some. In fact, there were surprised people shut out from the show and left outside when the 650 tickets sold out. In this episode of Undermine, RJ, Matt, Jonathan, and Brad discuss the significance of Fish's first show at the Paradise with the help of Tom Baggett, who helped organize the buses of fans from Burlington, Vermont, down to the club. The guys will also talk about the impact of Fish playing more shows outside of Vermont and the importance of these early shows in Boston, as well as the early shows in New York. back after this quick break. The fish we know today has sold out arenas and large auditoriums around the world for years, but in 1989, a performance to 650 people was momentous, and it was in Boston. Pretty far out of their Burlington, Vermont comfort zone. So how did the January 26, 1989 Paradise Show come to be? And what was its lasting impact?
2: Would you please welcome? Put your hands together all the way from Burlington, Vermont. Fish.
3: I didn't know. I didn't know know. Well,
4: My name is Tom Baggett. I first saw Fish at Nectar's in probably mid-September of 1987, shortly after uh, coming to UVM
3: for my freshman year. Like most fans from the 1980s, Tom got to know Fish as a bar band, attracted to their eclectic sound and shows where anything could happen.
4: The band was exciting. They were You know, they were a little sloppy, they were young, they were pushing boundaries. And I think that's what excited me the most was they were synthesizing a lot of music that I was really into, you know, Supertramp, ZZ Top, The Dead, Zappa, um, you know, progressive rock, blues, funk. It was based on music, but it wasn't just based on the music. It was based on the attitude that seemed to be behind the music. There was a sense of irony and humor, and, but there was also this really ambitious musical bravery. They were willing to fall on their faces, and they did. a Couple of botched endings, you know, let's stretch this out, and maybe they got lost a couple of times, but it really was, I mean, that wasn't what I saw in the first 90 seconds. The first 90 seconds, I just caught a vibe. A sense of family definitely developed fairly quick with these guys locally. It preceded me, for certain, but by September of 87, you know, it was starting to pick up a little bit. I mean, by the time of the Paradise Show which was January of 89 or something. It felt like this was gonna be big, but no it, no one tapped me to do it. I just saw, I, I thought that it could be done. And I asked Paluska, you know, if I do this, can you get me tickets so I can sell the tickets? And he, you know, he was like, hell yeah, Let's sell this out. I, I did something relatively simple. I rented a couple of Bluebird, classic Bluebird 47 seat buses. And with a a friend of mine at the time, this guy a little older than me uh, went by Brother Craig. I don't remember the details of who paid for the buses or who put the deposit down or who did what, but I remember a hell of a lot of phone calls and people coming up to me and looking for tickets. And I think we charged like 20 bucks and I got you a ticket to the Paradise and a bus ride there and back. The only rule was no glass bottles and we tipped the hell out of the drivers, that's for sure. But leading up to it, Between Craig and I, we sold probably like 250 tickets or something like that. But there was also this community pride, like we're going to show Boston, you know, they don't want to give our boys a gig. We're going to sell this damn room out. And this expectation, this excitement leading up to it. But it was a lot of organizing is really what it was, was just making sure people got their tickets, making sure that we actually were going to have a bus. And I mean, until we got on the bus, we hadn't done anything like this before. Until we got on the bus, you know, we weren't 100% certain of anything.
3: The anticipation, excitement, and sense of the unknown draws so many to fish shows. Here's RJ, Matt, Brad, and Jonathan diving deeper into this paradise show.
0: All right, you just heard Tom Baggett talk about The Paradise Show, super entertaining story, and uh, we're going to talk first about the importance of this show. Um, I'll just say that we've heard a lot in Fish lore about how the gig was maybe slightly underwhelming for the band and for fans, but listening to the first set, which is, of course, the only thing that we have to listen to, I feel like it's pretty high energy. They seem pretty amped up, and I like the I didn't know opener with they just end up kind of screaming. But um, there's a lot of really good stuff in here, including the the alumni with a just Ripping guitar solo So I feel like Going back to this show And, and listening to the first set I, I felt like it was Pretty high energy um, This obviously the show lives on For a lot of different reasons But Matt What's your take On the importance of this show?
1: It's a big show for them In terms of their growth As a band And as a milestone in kind of Launching them as a touring act It's probably not a big Musical milestone It seems like a Let's put on a Standard Great Fish show For a potentially New audience Or a bigger audience In, in Boston And we'll see that Throughout the year as they kind of branch out to different cities, always kind of coming back to Burlington for more shows in between little little touring legs. This show at the Paradise, it's not the tightest show that they played in 1989. You know, for example, the beginning of Yem is is pretty sloppy given a lot of the tight performances of that song in this year. It's funny because they did this a lot throughout the year, but it seems very odd to me to open such a huge landmark show with I Didn't Know, especially after this really enthusiastic intro of the band. Band from Ben Hunter, like, would make more sense almost for them to launch into Wilson or Divided Sky or ACDC bag or something, and instead they do this goofy I Didn't Know, which kind of falls off the rails by the end of it. It's pretty wild. Um, the thing that I hear on the tape is the audience is going absolutely crazy for the band the whole show. you got to imagine there's probably a healthy mix of their devoted fans uh, who came down from Burlington on the bus ride. There's people from around Boston and New England who had heard of Fish but had not yet... Had an opportunity to see them. Maybe they got slipped a tape when they were doing some trading of dead tapes or something like that. And then there's potentially some just newcomers, people that got brought along as a with a friend who went to the show or something like that. We do know that you know there was a line out the venue for people that couldn't get in. Trey's dad, you know, his recollection in the film was that there was you know the streets were closed down and there was just like tons of people. So it was it was definitely in terms of the, the audience a, a huge show. The other thing that sticks out to me for this show is it kind of sets the stage for later on where they. We'll even hear about this later in 1989, but they basically just create their own party. And this is a path that they will kind of forge uh, moving into the 90s. Um, It extends the earlier shows at places like The Ranch where they would do these sort of DIY gigs. But then, you know, ultimately it's going to lead to the creation of the festivals as well. So some of those seeds are definitely sowed very early on here.
5: You know, if I didn't know about the importance of the show, I wouldn't think much about it. I might spend my time with like the shows from the front 10 days later. It's that old rec music fish term, uh, standard grade, average grade. The uh, you enjoy myself is imperfect, but I wonder what the guy off the street who would never seen or heard fish thought of it because an imperfect you enjoy myself to my ears might still be pretty mind-blowing to somebody who's never heard the song. It still pays off nicely in the end too. The rest of set, as you alluded to, RJ, is chock full of great playing. I wish we had set two. It looks good on paper. Obviously, you know, yeah, it's a big deal career-wise and proves an important point about their drawing power. In 10 months, they would play back-to-back nights at the Paradise on uh, November 30th and December 1st.
6: It's it's crazy they played this place so many times just in 89, but it was such a big deal the first time they played it. And I think that comes from the band not taking no for an answer. You know, the story that that they wouldn't book Fish because, you know, some small band from Vermont. And they were like, well, we'll just rent the place out. I also love the stories to go back. Uh, you know, Tom's story is a little bit different. In The Companion, they talk about, um, you know, Tom rented greyhounds for everyone and that the streets were closed down and that everyone who was shut out was maybe a BC student or everyone who was shut out was a college student from Boston who was kind of, you know, maybe just looking to get on the bus. And then we hear from Tom that you know it, he definitely rented just like those Bluebird school buses. <laughs> and it's a cool take to go back and listen to the history and, and think about maybe the fish was, you know, this big <laughs> always always the fish is always bigger yeah you know, you know mm-hmm. after you after you catch it and tell the story and it's gone
0: so one one question how did, how did all these bc and bu students that were maybe they were winding around six blocks not not just one how did they find out about it? i mean like word was spreading fast right i don't know if tapes were, were circulating beyond like the intimate group of people who were in burlington like do you guys think that tapes were circulating widely enough now that people in boston might have heard about it and been like oh yeah i've heard these guys
5: did we hear earlier in the season was it Amy Skelton saying that she was going to other parts of New England and trading tapes with people and, just, and giving them fish tapes and you know spreading the word and so as one of you mentioned a little bit ago you know maybe they got it with along with a dead tape. Um, that's how I got my first fish tape. Years later, but still, word is being passed around. That must be must be how it's happening. Word of mouth, tapes passing around. But I, I wanted to go back also to the kind of mythological element here. Talked about this the last time we got together. And this is another example, I think, of how the story becomes a little bigger than the thing. And I love it. I love how that keeps happening with fish.
1: Passing. wall in gnarly armor he was on his way to see the king Willson, Willson, Willson. he led me through the streets of prussia talking as he tried to crush a bug that scurried underneath his boot heel he said there was a place where we should go in terms of fans discovering Fish, if you read a lot of reviews, firsthand accounts um, on Fish.net or in the the companion Farmer's Almanac, you see a lot of folks in 1989 seeing their first show and they have a similar story. I'd heard of the band or I had one tape and I kind of knew or a buddy told me, hey, let's go check out this band. There was even one review I read of uh, I think it was the first ever Baltimore show at the 8x10, where somebody said, we thought that they were an Allman Brothers cover band. And so we went and saw them. I think there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. I think there was a lot of curiosity from a lot of people who didn't quite know exactly what they were getting into. But also one of the things that's amazing to me is the number of people who saw a band that they knew nothing or very little about and left that show as a lifelong fan. We all see a lot of live music. I, I can maybe count on one hand the number of times that that's happened to me where seeing a band that i didn't know anything about or you know knew very little about that i instantly became a fan you know a lot of times you'll go you'll you know buy the record at the merch table or you know check in on them a little bit further listen to some material that you hadn't heard but to leave the show and say these guys are it and i'm gonna kind of go in head first is pretty wild and you hear that story over and over again
0: I don't have
6: the numbers, obviously, but I think Burlington or UVM had a lot of -of out-of-towners come to, to be a student, and probably most of them from the Northeast, guessing word spread that way, especially because there's so many colleges in Boston, a friend of a friend, you know, who knows somebody up at UVM. Um, knows these guys. And therefore, you know, the promoters maybe hadn't heard of them or the, you know, the the guys who booked the gigs for the Paradise, but the students did.
0: I think that's fair. And also, Matt, just to your initial point about I didn't know, I mean, that's like, I don't know if this is the first, but definitely one of the early points of of many where Fish does exactly the opposite of what you (laughs) think they would or should do. Exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) It's amazing.
5: You know, uh, the dead were known for kind of tanking the big ones and i don't really think that fish did that here and also as i think matt pointed it out too is that they opened a lot of shows with i didn't know in 1989 which i didn't know until i sat down and just started looking through them all uh, while preparing for this I yeah it's, it was quite was common apparently I didn't, know
3: I didn't know that i was that far gone Pardon me, Doug. Pardon me, Doug. <laughs> Is this a picture of Otis? Yes, yes. 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 Taken yes. just he before he died. Well, you can give well, me you his hide. Give me his high.
0: Well, I, I think we need to just throw it back to Tom Baggett for one more memory from him, because uh, I think this really captures the fact that, you know, you might not know a fish before a show, but after the show, you definitely would. So here's here's Tom Baggett again.
4: What I remember the most, ironically, I did end up in the music industry for over 25 years, you know, after this, I was standing at the bar feeling good at this point. I mean, you know, if you weren't feeling good at a fish show at, 18 or 19, then I don't know what your issue was, but uh, I was feeling really good, and I overheard these two gentlemen, older gentlemen, standing next to me, who were like, "What's going on here? These guys, like, I wouldn't give them a gig. We wouldn't, we didn't, we wouldn't book them here." And they've sold out the room, and they were sort of, they were stunned, they were, they were surprised, they were enjoying it. I, didn't, I don't think they really knew what to make of it. I mean, these were serious promoters, they understood the Dead Sea and they knew what was going on, but this one took them by surprise.
3: Fish thrives in keeping audiences on their toes. One way the band did this in the 80s, which they still do now, is by introducing new songs. In 1989, they debuted a lot of material that would end up on Lawn Boy, and some covers too. Let's go to Brad, Jonathan, Matt, and RJ to hear how these new songs impacted their shows in 1989.
6: All right, we've hit, um, on each of these episodes, the new songs that the the guys have added to the repertoire. And here, we've seen a lot. During this period of time, we say Split Open and Melts New, The Mango Song, Bathtub Gin, The Okipa Ceremony, Punch You in the Eye, My Sweet One, Reba and Lawn Boy are all new, and, and, you know, those are all staples now. Also some covers, If I Only Had a Brain, Highway to Hell, and Frankenstein all appear. And, of course, in the spring of 89, we see the first of many and lovable vacuum solos uh, from Fish.
3: Oh, what <laughs> <laughs>
6: Um, October first, 1989, Reba is debuted. It's not in its final form uh, either. As Bathtub, Bathtub Jim appeared five twenty six eighty nine 89, and it was I think five or six minutes long. So they're not what we know of them today. And I think it's a little different because when we looked at Fluffhead and then Fluff's Travels, those were all pieces that Trey put together uh, to make the final song. And we heard those pieces in separate forms. Here, for me, Reba and Bathtub are just—they're nowhere near the final form. They're good. You, you can see what's coming. Uh, but they're not what we know
1: of them. One thing that you have to remember with Fish is that as opposed to a lot of other bands, when you are hearing new material debuted, it's usually a peek into the future rather than kind of looking back. And what I mean is, you know, Fish was debuting new material on the road rather than recording it for albums and then playing it on the road after they've put out an album. A lot of bands have this second album slump where they, you know, they have a lot of great material, they record their first album, they tour behind it, and then they need to write a whole new batch of songs for a second album very, very quickly. And so they may not have the inspiration they may have some writer's block. Uh, Maybe the quality just isn't up to snuff because they're rushing. And so a lot of bands, their second album isn't, nearly as good as the first album. Fish didn't really have that problem because they had so much material that they were playing that they could have made an entire second album just out of songs that they were already playing that did not make the cut for Junta. And they were in heavy rotation. I mean, songs like Mike Song and Harry Hood that could have easily gone on an album. Instead, what we have here in 1989 is we look forward to the 1990 album, Lawn Boy, and that's when a lot of this material is debuted. So you're kind of moving into the next era rather than extending you know, what was happening in 80s with the new material that's being added. If you look at the stats for this year, there's 42 songs that debuted in 1989, but only 13 of them became regulars. The other ones were either one-timers, maybe some random covers, or something they tried out that didn't quite work out. Some of them only played three or four times in 1989, and then just kind of went away. An example of that is the cover of the Guess Who's Undone, which Fishman did a handful of times. There's no songs in 1989 that are retired, which had been previously played regularly in the years leading up to that. Some of the songs were kind of folded into other songs, like all of the parts of Fluffhead that we've you know talked about. Who do we do and the chase and Claude and whatnot. But generally, everything that's played in this year for the final time um, that was not played at all in the 90s was just some sort of a short-lived cover or or something like that that didn't really have a long shelf life. The only exception uh, to this, there's one song that. They've been a regular in the, the repertoire leading up to this, um, that they stopped playing, and that was Anarchy. But otherwise, they're growing the catalog, the repertoire, instead of kind of trading in and out new songs for old songs.
5: I'm still holding out hope that In A Hole will come back, if I only had a brain lasted way longer.
3: It happened
1: beneath the water tower. I was on my way home on a misty night. Dreaming of dinner and a shower. A chill in the air that wasn't a soul inside. When I sat on the stick, I started to slip and I fell in a hole. Well, hole was-
5: so we have Mango debuted in eighty-nine. It didn't appreciably change after that. Melt does. And, you know, we've discussed this many times in the past that it kind of holds its form for a couple of years before they finally master what it can do and break it open. It's pretty compelling right from the start. Bathtub Gin, as Brad alluded, you know, is not quite there, but it seems to be almost half comedy when it debuts, practically laughing all the way through it. But, you know, then they play it. They, what is it? The 26th it debuted on the 28th this is actually a pretty good one. But again, it doesn't really stretch, but they're already kind of Finding its feet Very quickly I, They must be rehearsing Like crazy In this time frame too But without a jam Like what is the point Of that song? <laughs> it's
0: fun you know? It's is fun it? Yeah I think
6: Page's keys Are so different And unique Compared to anything
5: else Especially if it were 1989 It really does Showcase his playing And as a It, it was like half comedy When it was a new song A lot of vocal jams In there a lot. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Here comes the joker We all must laugh Cause we're all in this together And we love to take a bath
5: But, you know, it had a long way to go. But it, the seed is there, right? They also, you know, they brought in uh, Dave Grippo and Russ Remington. It was October 20th at the front. One of my favorite tapes. I don't know when it dawned on me that I think this was probably in service of the, like, Lomboy album sessions for Split Open and Melt. Because that's where they kind of did the fall start. Actually, they didn't do the fall start. They played most of the song. They got to the break and then the lights go down and Trey is just like, He's pissed. He swears on stage.
3: We should just do that again. I'm sorry. I can't stand it. This is like the coolest
0: thing we were going to do all night. And the lights went off and they couldn't read the fucking music. So we're just going to do it again. I'm sorry. I'm so psyched for this. The fucking lights went off.
3: Let's just take it. Let's just, all right, let's just go all the way back to the beginning. Make sure
0: lights don't go off, Chris.
5: So they are working this material, continually crafting the songs on stage for themselves and the audience. Some of the ones that are a year or two old have become real powerhouses. Like, take almost any David Bowie from 1989, and it's more polished and more likely to rip your face off. I feel like we say this constantly through this season of Undermine, but it's really true. The band is just churning out the songs that are the kind of the bricks, the foundation for this towering band that we have today.
0: It's interesting to me that the Lawn Boy songs are what will become, you know, the new material for Lawn Boy up here, and even though Junta doesn't come out till about halfway through 89, so they, they haven't really even released this first album before they start, you know, rolling out a ton of new material, just to Matt's point about how much how much stuff they have. There's some really good early versions of Punch You in the Eye, including From the Wetlands um, October 26th, like pretty fiery, and it's just funny to think we talked in episode 5 about game and the whole saga and it's interesting that this was like added to the story afterward. obviously we've known that for a long time but i just think it's funny that it's like gotten enough mileage out of this like wilson character let's like let's (laughs) let's do another song and then of course punching the eye you know evolves over time too so it's cool and and i think goes to the point we've, we've talked about a lot which is just that they're not especially trey just not married to anything in its final form it's like everything kind of can evolve and grow on its own which is just cool You mentioned the mango song jonathan which the first time was uh on august 12th 1989 and that was actually played for a wedding and we happened to talk to the person who got married that day steve from the joneses i think we should hear from him about his wedding and the music that he got to hear at his wedding
2: My ex-wife and I paid them 700 bucks to play at our wedding reception in 1989. August 12th, 1989 at the Burlington Boathouse down on the lakefront. We, we paid them 700 bucks. I think ultimately her father gave them a thousand dollars with the tip. They they debuted the Oki Paw ceremony at that wedding reception and like six jazz standards because they were really getting into the jazz at the at that time with the johnny b fishman jazz ensemble and i we they invited us up on to jump on the trampolines during susie greenberg which we did in our wedding attire and then i i went up a little bit later and played i sang iculus with them and then fishman got off the drum kit got a trombone and a trumpet in in both of his hands i got on the drums and he was jumping on the trampolines and blowing into these horns as badly as he could.
3: As they grew, Fish continued taking their music to more towns and bigger venues. Traveling across the country was a big change as they pursued their dream of finding and creating more Fish fans. They were starting to spend more and more time on the road and as they expanded outward, Their music and the fish community grew as well. We'll dive into these travels after a quick word from our sponsors.
1: Welcome to another edition of Songs and Slopes, the segment where we pair albums from the year we're discussing, in this case 1989, with a beverage from our friends at Upslope Brewing. This week, I'm listening to the 1989 hip-hop masterpiece Three Feet High and Rising by De La Soul. This album, as well as the Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique, made 1989 the year when sampling took off. MCs were no longer rapping over the outro on a 12-inch disco record. Now you could hear John Bonham's drums mashed up with a song from Schoolhouse Rock or Steely Dan, Lee Dorsey, and Otis Redding working together to create one of the catchiest hooks of all time. De La Soul's message of positivity and inclusion was also a refreshing counterbalance to the emerging gangster rap scene dominating the hip-hop charts as the 80s gave way to the 1990s. I've paired this amazing album with Upslope's Citra Pale Ale, a blend of wonderful citrus flavors and floral hops, which creates a complex yet brilliant brew that will seem fresh each time you sip it. Brad, what are you listening to this week?
6: Thanks, Matt. I chose Upslope's
1: Craft Lager
6: this time. It's a nice, crisp, clean lager. That's an easy-drinking-anytime beer for me. And I paired the brew with Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood. The Crew's 1989 album was a real surprise for me when I first listened to it. I felt like they had new energy, and they had a couple really solid hits with Dr. Feelgood and Kickstart My Heart. I have to say Upslope surprised me with this lager. I almost forgot what a nice malted barley lager with a nice dry finish tastes like. It's delicious when it's cold. It's a great spring or summertime beer you can drink while you're listening to some hair rock in the backyard, maybe on your home stereo or your boombox. What are you drinking, Jay.
5: I'm pairing the Upslope Rocky Mountain Kolsch with XTC's Oranges and Lemons. Not only does the Rocky Mountain Kolsch have bright citrus notes, they put a modern spin on a traditional Kolsch ale by adding honey and sage. On Oranges and Lemons, XTC draws on the psychedelia of the 60s and updates it with their own distinctive post-new-wave sensibility, creating something both new and familiar. What about you, RJ? All right, guys, I'm going to pair a Hazy
0: IPA from Upslope with Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever. If you're sitting outside on a warm day and you crack a hazy IPA with the vibrant, refreshing taste and you hear the first chords to free fall in, does it really get any better than that? I, I love this album, I love Tom Petty. This is actually gonna happen in my house this weekend, so that's what I'm doing and I suggest you all do the same.
1: We would also like to take this opportunity to send a message of love and hope to our friends at Upslope and all of our listeners in Boulder, Colorado, in the wake of this week's tragic mass shooting. Our hearts are with you.
0: Thanks for checking out Songs and Slopes, and thank you to Upslope. Upslope.
3: As we explored in Episodes 5 and 6, Fish took their first trip westward in the summer of 1988 to play a string of gigs in Colorado. These shows displayed the band's ability to showcase their unique sound and energy to listeners beyond Burlington. As they entered 1989 and began to receive outside help to book their shows, they spent the year on the road, gigging regularly through the Northeast playing 128 shows in total, while spending less of their time playing in Burlington than at any point in their career. In addition, they'd close out the 1980s with their first ever New Year's show at the Boston World Trade Center Exhibition Hall. A new tradition was born. Fish has played 23 amazing New Year's shows since that first one. Let's hear from the guys once again about Fish's intense touring ethic and what it meant.
1: So as we've mentioned, 1989 is the, the year when touring kind of begins for Fish. Um, they're not just playing in Burlington or the, even in New England. They're branching out not well past the mid-Atlantic region. They're staying in this, the eastern time zone the entire year, but they are branching out to new places where they had not played before. And when you look at the kind of landscape of the, the tour throughout the year, it's interesting because they play in every single month of the year, some more than others, but they have this kind of spoken hub method of touring where they kind of go out and play a couple of shows in a new region and then go back to Burlington and play at the front Play at Nect- they play their final shows at Nectar's this year, we're still playing at college gigs and things like that and then kind of like going out for another you know quick jaunt the next month and Paige and his recollection when for the Dinner and a Movie that aired uh, last year from 1989 also mentioned that they were kind of taking these weekend trips out to, to play new places in terms of how that affects Fish's sound or their approach to the shows I did a lot of listening to the First shows that they played in new places. And when you listen to their first show in Baltimore or the Philadelphia area, you hear not necessarily the enthusiastic audience that you heard on the Paradise tape. As opposed to that show that they set up and kind of imported a lot of their raving fans from Burlington, now they're playing places where they probably have rooms full of people who really have never heard them before and have to be won over. So I don't think that you hear any kind of sacrifice in the humor or the silliness to the band um, which would kind of be a natural approach to expect that they would sort of take things a little bit more seriously kind of standardize their show go out and play a great show for a new audience to try to win them over in the same way but you do hear you hear them working the same old warhorses over and over again at these new places you know there's a lot of repeats from night to night so there's stretches for example where they play yam for eight shows in a row and that happens multiple times just with that song throughout the year you know they'll play it eight shows in a row and then take a couple off and then play it 14 shows in a row so you and joe myself possum ac dc bag the mike screw these are getting a lot of work on the road uh as kind of the warhorses to um to help them gain good favor with these new audiences uh that they were they were playing at in new cities
0: I, i read in the fish companion that someone said like the seeds of fish tour had been planted this year which was interesting because right when I read that, I started crying because all I want to do is go see <laughs> a fish show. But but also it, it is true. You see these little like runs like you were mentioning. There's a couple of things I want to mention. First, there's the 42089 show at Amherst, which of course we've heard in previous episodes is where Paluska was. And, and that's kind of how he formed his relationship with the band. And in a future episode, you're going to hear a memory of someone from that show, um, which is interesting. But to me, like the the move into New York seems notable, even though the shows aren't done that notable except for the wetland show 1026 which i remember getting the tape of i feel like that was a a a one set you know that circulated so so much but they played five shows at the wetlands in 89 with the 1026 show being the most well known with a great bowie closer and i listened to it and then i was looking into it a little bit and and according to fish.net the jam charts says if you wonder where the providence bowie came from start here which which obviously you know made my ears perk up place has become such a great home for live music and for the jam scene. And I think holds like a special place in, you know, live music that is notable that they they played so many shows there. But also, I guess Burlington to New York City is not super far away, but it must have been pretty cool for them to be able to continue to to go back to New York and play more shows in New York City. Because if you're a band, you know, who doesn't want to play in New York City? So, I felt like those shows were were particularly notable, but it's almost like the humor and the banter and the general uh, silliness of the band are like continue to be baked in along with this material along the way. And the playing is getting better. But if you see a Fish show in
5: 89, you're kind of seeing what you would see for the next several years. Yeah, I really wanted to say that road shows were gonna be, you know, a showcase of tightness and the local shows wherever they let it all hang out, but that's just not accurate. I mean, with the exception (laughs) of like Ian's Farm on 528, or the Junta release party, things are fairly tight all over and the jokes abound and they seem to become more comfortable moving from the beautiful melodic stuff like A Divided Sky to shredding an alumni or playing a fisherman's song. They're just mixing it up through all the different aspects of who Fish is at this time and very comfortably going from one thing to another. Sometimes a lot of those, uh, not true segues, but short, no break kind of sets just really hammering it out and when they do pause, Trey's saying something silly and they're having a good laugh at their own expense and that's Always a blast. They experiment with the set list. Take that Pearl Street Ballroom from 921 Northampton, Mass. I really like this set. There's a lot of back-to-back songs. The Fluffhead isn't played, but we get McGrupp into Who Do We Do? And in set two, they do Divided Sky into The Chase, into Dinner and a Movie, into Bundle of Joy, into Possum. And then the next show, in addition to the debut of Reba, you know, they play Hood into The Chase, into Wilson. And they are some of these sequences they repeated here and there through that time frame through the fall but again they're just mixing it up trying to see where the pieces land and I assume they're having fun because it's a lot of fun to listen to
6: so I think we can clearly see a confidence that was built uh, with the trip to Colorado in 88. You know, it was covered really well in episode six. I see that the band's now comfortable expanding their circle. I imagine if, if we're looking at a map, you know, the circle's larger from Burlington that expands. Uh, I want to talk about a show that's actually from Vermont and, and from Goddard. Their last show at Goddard College, the, the infamous Sculpture Room, was Halloween 88. It's different. I think it should be checked out. It's good. But Trey and Mike dress up. It's most likely their first TV appearance, even though it's a rebroadcast on Burlington Public Access. They say the proceeds of the show are going to benefit the sculpture room for Goddard College. The band, before the second set opener, which is a tremendous Bowie, the band gives everybody a box of mac and cheese to shake. Um, it's, I'm assuming what was tongue-in-cheek. They say the, the boxes of mac and cheese will be donated, so don't open them. Um, but I can imagine the mess that was made in the sculpture room. So uh, back to the Bowie. The Bowie's good. It, it's one of the longest jams up to that point um, in the career to me it's. I, I could re-listen to that Bowie some of this stuff I won't necessarily go back to but this Bowie's really good This is a familiar room for them, the last time they played this room, but it's different. They've grown, they've expanded, they're even sillier. It's going to be recorded for television. They're clearly and truly interacting with the audience with these boxes of mac and cheese, so it's more fish, it's just bigger fish. I think that goes with them
3: expanding their circle. Fish would go on to play the Paradise another five times in 1989. This tradition, finding venues outside Burlington that could act as a home base, continues to this day. Think of venues like Madison Square Garden, Dix, SPAC, Deer Creek, Hampton Coliseum, The Gorge, and so many more, where Fish has carved out their own space and further evolved their sound. Now let's hear from the guys one last time about their takeaways from 1989.
5: As I I think I've said before, you know, fish repeatedly stepped into new territory in 89 and proved that they belonged there. They continue to forge their repertoire and their chops into kind of a powerful, dynamic, and entertaining club act. They shared a bill in December with Blues Traveler, which featured a sit-in with John Popper that would really be the beginning of a very important relationship for them. They traveled as far south as Washington, D.C., while making regular forays throughout New England, New York, Pennsylvania. You know, it's a logical but rapid growth for a band who, it was likely visible at this point, It's destined to be a big band.
1: One thing that we didn't specifically call out yet was that in uh, 1989, 1989- had the first New Year's Eve show and this has obviously become one of the most consistently big nights of the year for Fish it's something that is kind of still lauded uh, to this day and they started the whole tradition out by doing what they still do which is to throw a big party uh, for their fans during the New Year This time they did it at the Boston World Trade Center. They sort of created their own venue. They provided snacks for everybody, bands wearing tuxedos. And there's even a little bit of a gag in there with Fishman showing up in a tuxedo G-string. We sat down with Tom Hazelton, who became a Fish fan in the late 80s, first seeing the band at Nectar's before being in attendance at the band's December 31st, 1989 show. And we wanted to share a few of his thoughts here. I think the first show that I saw out of state was probably uh, a New Year's Eve show in Boston, which was uh, at the World Trade Center, I think. And that was a great show. But I couldn't really park myself in front of the stage and just watch Trey play guitar. I, I could tell that it was a new era of fish that the era of the tiny little shows on the UVM campus, those were long gone. I still have very fond memories of those days, and uh, I'm so glad I was a part of it. That, that band really
4: blew me away. They were phenomenal.
1: New Year's Eve itself was not the only tradition that they kind of created with that. Um, They also had the first New Year's run, which saw the band play in Philadelphia, in New York, uh, and then in Boston to close out the year. That would kind of be what they would generally do uh, for the first, at least into the first half of the 90s, is play a little bit of a mid-Atlantic slash New England run of different cities, some of their bigger fan bases are, in order to kind of close out the year. And then, you know, later in the 90s, of course, they just kind of settled into, into one city like New York or Miami. Uh, to, to close out the year. The other thing that's that's interesting here is that they set the tone for the 31st itself not necessarily being the best show of that run um, because the, the shows on the 29th and 30th and 89 are also uh, much stronger than New Year's Eve itself. In terms of other takeaways, I mentioned back in episode five that my biggest question coming out of 1988 and looking into 1989 was whether any of the playfulness that they had and creativity with every single show would be sacrificed in terms of consistency, uh, as they started to branch out into other places beyond Vermont, we see a little bit of that. And to me, 1989 does feel like it's sort of the experiment or proving ground in fish touring before things really take off in 1990. And they're, they're playing a lot of different places all across the country. But at the same time, they're really not afraid to do what they do best in front of these new audiences. And what they do best is so far outside of the trends in music in the 80s and, and up till the modern era that it's, it's a huge risk for them to be doing that in front of um, new audiences. So it obviously paid off the audiences which started seeing them in these new cities in the late 80s. They proved that their model was working and um, most of those people are probably still lifelong fans. So this definitely the start of, I think, what Modern Fish in terms of a touring act would be as the 80s came to a close. Well, I just
0: want to go back to the beginning of the episode where people heard Tom Baggett say this was a mission for us to get Fish in the Paradise and that people weren't going to recognize Fish. The fans were going to make them recognize Fish. And I just think that's like planting the seeds for the Fish community, which is so big and we're everywhere, right, at this point. But just to see it start to grow into the Northeast and see these people in different college towns and, and different towns like Portland, which Jonathan mentioned earlier, and people coming out and becoming fans and becoming part of this live music community is you start to see that with, I guess, some of the shows, you know, them going into a, a lot of other places that they've never played before so I think this really was the beginning of kind of fish tour but also really the beginning of the fish community outside of you know the people of Burlington
6: it's a great way to end the 80s knowing the 90s as Matt has mentioned the early part of the 90s is not it's just such heavy touring so many shows I mean those are the years we get the most fish
0: and just to wrap up I want to throw it one last time to Tom Baggett who we've heard a lot from this episode just on the fish community and the community that he joined when he got to UVM and what he saw growing I just thought this is a really cool way to kind of summarize 1989. So we will, we'll throw it to Tom Baggett to, to wrap it up.
4: You know, I had friends who were deadheads who would tell stories about this one day I was hiking with Jerry on Mount Tam and, you know, this happened I had this understanding that there was a community there and that I was never going to be a part of that inner part of the community. I wasn't going to have that kind of connection to my musical idols. And as much as I you know, loved the dead and you know, loved seeing the dead, there was going to be a distance. And I realized very quickly, um, you know, in that first fish show at Nectars that um, this band was going to be that band for the next generation. And that the engagement with the band and their community that I thought was going to evolve um, would be a rite of passage for maybe generations of kids. That turned out to be true, and it's not like I'm some genius for figuring it out or anything. It was just a lot of amazing timing.
3: In 1989, Fish and their fans were searching for a sense of freedom for something new. George H.W. Bush was just inaugurated as President of the United States, and a new generation of young people were beginning to seek out alternative music, alternative ways to express themselves, and alternative ways of life. In many ways, the first Paradise show marks a turn as Fish took their music from the Green Mountains to big cities across the Northeast and beyond. As the band grew and the media began to learn more about them, comparisons to The Grateful Dead arose among fans and critics alike. As we discussed in the first two episodes of Undermine, Fish played a lot of covers in their early days which often included songs by The Grateful Dead. By way of their traveling circus of fans as well as their penchant for jamming, the comparison to The Dead was always an easy one to make, but was it the right one? In the next episode, we'll be hearing from Undermine hosts Dave Goldstein, Brian Brinkman, and Jonathan Hart, who will take a look at Fish's relationship with the Grateful Dead. In addition, they'll be exploring why Fish put everything they had into their music in the first place. To do so, they'll be jumping back in time for an analysis of the 27-minute version of Whipping Post from November 23, 1985, at Goddard College. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Mind is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Co-hosted by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook. Writing and production assistance by Noah Eckstein. Production assistance by Nick Sejas, Christina Collins, and Don Jenkins. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. Thanks to all of our interviewees. We'll see you next week.
4: Hello, everybody.
2: I'm Bruce. like our concerts on the corner series.
5: Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on the corner of Gray Street.
6: Hey, you, do you have any plans this year? 020-D.com SoundTalentMedia.com or on your favorite podcast app.